You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. This episode will cover Stars, Part 4 of Morningstar, the third installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. If you're watching this as a webcast, there is a chance you will hear some spoilers for later books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits will have been edited out. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Sagas and Sass or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Oh, and by the way, the views expressed by the hosts are those of us as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Last but not least, don't forget to check out our Patreon. With 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month, it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return, including early access to the podcast versions of these episodes, as well as timed patron-only access to these live videos, which will only be available to our patrons for the month after they've finished airing. You can find us at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now. We are finally to the final part of Morningstar, the third book in the original Red Rising trilogy. So we're going to start off with chapters 50 through 56. With the sword armada broken, Darrow sends Victra after Antonia, whose forces have captured Cabex. No! And then Darrow has a hollow conference with Romulus Aura. Obviously, Romulus's forces did not find any nuclear weapons, but Darrow claims that his did. And anyway, the Rim now has their independence and shouldn't be looking at that gift horse in the mouth. But, uh, Romulus do be aware that he got lied to. As Darrow's ships leave the Rim behind, he and the Howlers gather with Mustang and even Cassius to say goodbye to Roke as they shoot his torpedo casket towards the sun. Later, Darrow has Holiday bring Cassius to his stateroom, the room that had been Roke's, and they get drunk and watch some of Roke's hollows, hollows that are, in fact, from their time at the Institute. Memory, all alone in the moonlight. That was not rehearsed, thank you. I am a musical genius. <laughs> when they part ways, Darrow sends Cassius back to his cell with another holocube, one that apparently contains some hard truths. He goes to bed only to be woken up mere hours later because Victor has engaged Antonia and is calling for reinforcements. By the time they get there, though, she has won the day. Because as it turns out, not only did Antonia's ships legally belong to Victor, but there were also packed full of people who were actually loyal to her. So Antonia is in the brig, but she's not alone. Thistle is there as well. Dara tells them he wants to know what the Jackal is planning and that whichever one of them gives him more information will get to live. And then he leaves them in their adjacent cells. Victra quite literally turns up the heat, hoping their discomfort will lead to irritation, which will lead to one of them spilling the beans. But just when Thistle seems about to crack, Antonia reaches through the bars and bashes Thistle's head in. Honestly, it's one of the most upsetting scenes in the book because of how visceral it is. And of course, Antonia is the fucking worst, and they should have realized she had something up her sleeve. But since they didn't, Darrow and the others are too late to save Thistle. So instead... Victra just breaks her sister's fucking face, and she clearly would have taken it further had Severo not stopped her. 
Once Severo releases her, Victor simply tells him, told you. Because, oh yeah, he professed his love before the battle, and she called him an idiot. She thinks she has poison in her veins and will ruin everything, and her sister, being the literal worst, now that Roke is dead, only proves her right. This means Darrow has to say goodbye to another former friend, and when Holiday tries to comfort him with alcohol and conversation, they are unfortunately interrupted by a broadcast from the Jackal. Three weeks prior, he had somehow captured Uncle Merrill and executed him live on television, as it were. And considering Darrow had told Orion to keep the ship scanning the frequencies, he knows the recording will leak, if it hasn't already. Oh, and it has. And Uncle Nero was beloved by the low colors of the Rising, so shit immediately starts hitting the fan. And Sefi is apparently leading the charge. The low colors are hunting down every gold they can find, including Mustang and Cassius. Daryl, Severo, and Victra rush to Mustang's aid. Unfortunately, so do the Telemonicas. Mustang is nowhere to be found, and Kavix wants to storm the ship, but thankfully, Darrow convinces Kavix that his children should stay behind. During this whole exchange, Severo scampers off to who knows where, and even though it's just Darrow, Victra, and Kavix who show up in the hangar where the low colors have gathered, Darrow immediately knows it was a mistake to bring any other golds with him. Seven of their kind have already been scalped and hanged, and Cassius, while still alive, has been beaten bloody and is clearly about to suffer the same fate. Sefi isn't convinced by Darrow's attempts to defuse the situation, but then Severo appears to claim Cassius for himself. After all, Cassius did kill Severo's father, and what do they do to murderers? Why, hang them, of course. So Severo pushes Cassius from the walkway to hang, but then Severo confesses that he too is a murderer of, you know, a whole lot of obsidians and golds and greys while they were fighting war, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. And he puts a noose around his own neck and does a backflip off the walkway to die beside Cassius. Mm. Sefi seems to think about what's happening a little bit longer than she should, but she does eventually cut both Severo and Cassius down. Severo announces that this needs to be a new age, a new world, and that it needs to be a better one. Basically, he is the one who succeeds in diffusing the situation and also succeeds at getting into Victor's head because she bursts into the infirmary while he is being patched up, causing Severo to order everyone out. And when he and Victra emerge a little while later, they're engaged! Hot eyes, motherfuckers! They're married a week later in a sweet ceremony that is punctuated by Victra taking Severo's last name, despite hers being the older house. And everyone is having a grand old time at the reception. But remember how we can't have nice things in this series? Well, Holiday comes to fetch Darrow because he has a phone call from the Jackal. Obviously, he has spies in Darrow's fleet, and as per the usual for a miserable person like him, he can't stand anyone else having a good time and needs to try to make everyone else feel shitty just because he does. But while he might strike a nerve with some of his comments to Darrow, Mustang shows up to make a few good points of her own. And in the end, Darrow tells the Jackal they are coming for him, they will defeat him, and they will bring him to justice. Oh, and after hanging up, instead of going back to the party, he insists that he and Mustang spend some time alone together. Bow chicka wow wow. So matter of fact, with the bow chicka wow wow. Bow chicka wow wow. That is a phrase I have not heard since I probably was in high school. I think that also might be like the most deadpan like delivery of a bow chicka wow wow I ever thought I would be. And thank you for that blessing. Lowell's at Romulus telling Darrow to fuck off and clearly not believing that he found nukes. But boo, though, at Romulus saying, 
Give my regards to the core. I'll certainly give yours to the sons of Ares you leave behind. Like, I can't even be mad at him, really, when it comes down to it. Because unlike my most hated character, who, since I've been gone all this book, y'all haven't heard me uh, wax poetic about how much I hate the poet. A lot of that one right now. But But Romulus never pretended that he cared about the low colors. And frankly, him rubbing that in his face after Darrow clearly lies to him to get what Darrow wants. Like, it tracks. If I was the man, I would have done the same. Actually, no, if I was the man, I probably would have been a lot more violent and mad. But um, (laughs) very restraint for Romulus, I would say, honestly. I mean, he is a very restrained person. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I, mean, I don't think he had to lie about the nukes. I think he did, he did. though. There I was know a very... that's how he got Romulus to fight for him and not fight for the poet. But how uh, use a real life allegory? This is sort of like claiming there are weapons of mass destruction and there yeah. aren't any. In this particular really case, intrigued. there were, and they are stolen just by a different person. You know, they could have said, "Oh, look, we got fooled too." We thought that they had him. It turns out the Jackal has him. Once Roke has been defeated. I understand where you're coming from, but I think the problem is the Rim is all about honor. So even if Darrow tried to fib his way out of it instead of lie his way out of it, meaning even if Darrow's like, no, we didn't find nukes, but like, so gosh, where are they? I feel like in that case, he would possibly be bringing destruction down because like yeah the docks are destroyed but Romulus still has ships and people and Darrow is still in the rim and needs to collect his own ships and people I feel like Darrow did what he had to do by telling Romulus that Roke had the nukes and I felt like he didn't really have much of a choice telling him oh yeah we found the nukes because if he had tried to pull off a fib then there's like too much leeway there for the people from the rim to be like, honor is everything. We're going to attack you now. Well, I think more than that, the bigger problem was this. He had clearly been caught in a lie. Like at this point, no matter how it plays out with Romulus, Romulus knows that Darrow has lied. And for the rim, where honor is anything, even if Darrow tells the truth now, Darrow has still lied. Darrow's honor is still forfeit. Therefore, Darrow is still the enemy now. And I think that is based off of Darrow's knowledge of the Rim and the gold around him telling him about the Rim's values. I think that's why at this point he didn't bother saying, no, we didn't found the nukes. We found intelligence that another person had stolen them. It's the Jackal. And yes, while I agree that could have been a move, at this point to Darrow, he's already lost Romulus. And what does it matter if he tells him the truth that the Jackal has the nukes? What does it matter that he pretends he founds the nukes? Romulus knows he lied in the first place. And to Romulus, the end result is the same. Darrow lied to me. Therefore, Darrow no longer trusted. Like, this wasn't salvageable for Darrow once Romulus knew there was a lie. Exactly. I mean, I wish it could have been solved without him initially having to rely to Romulus. I wish saying that the Jackal had the nukes was, like, enough of a deterrent for Romulus but Romulus also doesn't know the jackal and doesn't know the shit he'd been pulling so that also wasn't an option that said though Darrow destroying the Ganymede ports strategically the right thing but that was so fucked that was so fucked I really hate to say it but like in a way I'm sort of terrified that the series doesn't end here because all I can think of is that the next books are going to be us seeing Darrow turn into the tyrant that he tried to overthrow 
And I'm just very terrified of that because he's already shown the ability to have that without people he cares about behind him, sort of maintaining him and keeping him on course. That's for future sagas and sass hosts to worry about. (laughs) So we got a little off track here, but next we're going to go into Roke's burial, which, sigh. Like, okay, Darrow cared about Roke for whatever reason. Fine. He gives Roke the barrel he would have wanted. You know, honestly, totally fine with that. Whatever. It's a metal casket shot into the sun. There's very few attendants at his funeral. And Darrow's thinking about how, after all, Roke's going to be forever known to Golds as the man who lost the fleet and to Darrow's people as just another Gold who thought he was immortal until the Reaper showed him otherwise. Obviously, the funeral is small. It sounds like just Darrow, Mustang, Severo, and the Gold Howlers were in attendance. Oh, and Cassius, because of course, like, Darrow got to be nice to Cassius and let Cassius come to his buddy's funeral. (sighs) In a way, that might have been Darrow's smartest move of the entire series. Can't believe I'm saying that. But uh, so Darrow thinks it's a lonely thing carrying the body of someone dead and loved. Like a vase, you know, will never again hold flowers. I wish he believed as firmly in the afterlife as I once did, as Ragnar did. I'm not sure when I lost my faith. I don't think it's something that just happens. Maybe I've been worn down bit by bit, pretending to believe in the veil because it's easier than the alternative. I wish Roke would have thought he was going to a better world, but he died believing only in gold, and anything that believes only in itself cannot go happily into the night. Dang. It's a good quote. I hate Roke, but... uh. In the end, Darrow does nail it in that Roke only believed in gold and anything that only believes in itself. Cheers to that, bud. Yeah. Uh, morning, cheers to that. Can I cheers at a funeral? It's Roke's funeral, so yes. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> You're right, and Darrow's right. It's just, it's still just kind of disappointing that as much as Darrow knows all of this, he still thinks so positively about Roke in a lot of other ways and, and how much he cared about him. And also later in the book thinks about him in this like, oh, I miss Roke sort of way. And it's like, oh, come on, dude, get over it. We get you had a straight boy crush. We talked about this two weeks ago. I don't think Darrow was necessarily straight. I think he was raised as a red where heteronormativity is like the only thing that can possibly exist in their training and brains and has like feelings for these dudes but will never actually realize anything because of the way he was raised i'm about to make a very very niche reference but darrow is exactly as much of a straight boy as wei wuxian in the untamed is a straight boy to the point where fandom will jokingly tag him having confused gay feelings as straight boy Wei Ying in <laughs> fanfic. And that is who Darrow is. He is straight boy Darrow. Because frankly, if Mustang hadn't rolled up and he hadn't killed Julian, like he would have married Cassius if he was able to conceptualize that he could. Well, that actually wheels us right into how later Darrow has Holiday bring Cassius to his room where they get drunk and watch hollows from their time at the Institute. And again, these are hollows from Roke's console. And I believe there's even a line where I can't remember if it's something Darrow thinks or something he says to Cassius, but he is saying, these are the ones he watched the most. And there was one particular one where they, the three of them were having a moment that was like the one he watched the most. The OT3 that would have happened if Darrow was actually a gold the whole time. Mm-hmm. And Roke wasn't Roke. Well, I mean, if Darrow had been raised to gold, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Not necessarily. Roke does say that it doesn't matter what color he was. 
because he didn't know that Darrow was a red when Quinn dies, and he says that's when he turned against Darrow. Oh, yeah, for sure on that point. I will say credit to Roke for at least um, being... Actually, no, no credit to Roke. I can't. I couldn't even like phrase it to get it out of my mouth. No, I think I think he says it doesn't matter what color you are, but <laughs> the lie detector test determined that was a lie. <laughs> yeah. so, also, we have detected that Roke is capable of thinking he loves other colors, but clearly he doesn't conceptualize that um, oh you can't God. actually expect somebody that you've enslaved to love you. Cough, Amethia, my hero, the pink who opened the door. And then who stood strong in the face of Rogue's gaslighting the hell out of her? Like, my queen. My queen. Sorry, I keep digressing. Well, as they're watching the Hollows, Cassius and Darrow have a little exchange about Rogue dying. We killed him, Cassius declares. It was our war. Was it? Darrow asks. We didn't make this world. And we're not even fighting for ourselves. Neither was Rogue. He was fighting for Octavia. For a society that won't even notice his sacrifice. They'll play politics with his death. Blame him. He died for him, and he'll just be a punchline. Cassius is disgusted and asks, how long do you think this goes on, this war? Between us or everyone? Us. Till one heart beats no more. Isn't that what you said? You remembered. And everyone? Until there are no colors. Now, would things have gone differently if Darrow hadn't been paired with Julian, though. And I want everybody's thoughts on this, because Cassius says that all Darrow has is thunder, and all he, Cassius, has is lightning. That they can only obey what they are, and without a storm, they're just men, but give them a conflict, and they rattle and roar. And Darrow doesn't think that's true, them being stuck, being one thing or another. This is kind of where we go back to, okay, so if Darrow hadn't killed Julian then Cassius wouldn't have started the blood feud with him. Things would have gone differently at the Institute, but Darrow still would have been a red. So I don't really think that in the end, it would have played out all that differently. It would have been more like a rogue situation. They were friends for a little bit longer than they were. And in fairness, though, so for all of you guys, everybody watching, you know that I haven't been around for the first three parts of this book because life be cray. And um, I'm running around like a headless chicken. I got my head back today though, but I literally read the entire book in like the last week. And I was like live chatting these guys as I was reading because I knew everybody else had already finished because I was being heckin' slow. And one thing that I kept talking about is how in the beginning of this book, Cassius was really starting to grow on me again. Because you'll remember from when we were doing the first book, my whole thing with Cassius was he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. And he's a hypocrite and he doesn't even realize how hypocritical he's being or he realizes and he doesn't care. And that was also my base issue with Roke as well. But the reason I was starting to forgive Cassius, whereas I will never accept or like or tolerate Roke, is because Cassius, when this book begins, he treats Darrow like a person, knowing he's a red, knowing everything he's done. Like he sees Darrow withered and destroyed from the torture that the Jackal has done. And he's disgusted because he's like, no person should be treated like this. And at this point, he covers him with his cloak. He gives him his own cloak off of his body. At that moment, it's like, it's not even that it's Darrow. It's just that somebody got treated this way. Like, this is not correct. And I think that's the biggest difference. I think Cassius would have had a reaction more similar to Mustang if they had been friends. I think he would have been incredibly betrayed, incredibly hurt. He would have made Darrow jump through hoops to gain his trust back. But I think that if Darrow hadn't killed Julian, that brotherhood and that trust would have still been there. And Cassius hasn't expressed 
the negative views towards low colors or viewing them as lesser just because they're low colors, like Roke has. And I think like Mustang, he would have eventually come around to it. Probably would have taken him a heck of a lot of time. But I think ultimately he would have come to the same conclusion, which is supporting Darrow. And their friendship would have also helped that if he found out that way. Versus, you know, I think in this case, the real reason you see his humanity come out in the end is because, you know, seeing somebody tortured and being like, that's a whole ass person. That's not okay. I think that was like his trigger this time. And I think if they had remained friends, his trigger would have been, I know this person as a person. So how could I consider people that are also like him, not people? And I think that's how he would have come around. Side note, I can't believe I didn't ever think of this when we were talking about part one of this book back in January, but Cassius drapes Darrow with his cloak, the cloak of protection, like in Song of Ice and Fire. That's a marriage, right? Like a marriage ceremony, like a marriage (laughs) cloak in Song of Ice and Fire and their husbands now. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Anyway, the night ends with Cassius saying that he's tired of this war. So am I, Darrow admits. And if I could bring Julian back to you, I would. But this war is for him, or men like him, the decent. It's for the quiet and the gentle who know how the world should be, but can't shout louder than the bastards. Aren't you afraid you're going to break everything and then not be able to put it back together? Yes, that's why I have Mustang. Cassius chuckles and says, I wish it was easier to hate you. Well, that's a toast if we've ever heard one. Cheers. I wish it was easier to hate you. <laughs> Not saying that I fully asked my dad to get me wine just so I could toast that. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Now, Gondor call. I'm sorry. Victor calls for aid. <laughs> oh, wait. And then she takes it back, like, the moment they arrive, because it turns out the people on her family ships were still loyal to her. Not Antonia, that bitch. However, though, when Severo asks if her people will follow us, a.k.a. Darrow, the Suns, the Rising, whatever, Victor's all, they follow me. These are my ships. And Mustang asks if Victor is still going to come to the core. And Victor just says, I'm not good with commitment. And Severo's all just like. (laughs) I would like to take this moment to. Give a shout out to fellow bitches who are not good at commitment. Cough myself, cough. And the very clear self-sabotage that I could see Victra doing with herself and Severo right here. I was like, sweetheart, like you're in it deep, aren't you? Like you got hella feels for this smelly wolf boy. And and you're just trying to sabotage yourself, aren't you? So he can't hurt you first. I, I see you, babe. Maybe don't do that with war, though, um, sweetheart, honey, sweetie. I just, I love how Severo's just like stomping around like, you know (laughs) just so grumpy i think the worst part about all of this is that as i have said before severo is my little meow meow as the children's say and i do know that if severo ever knew that anybody was like oh shivo feelings at him he would immediately eviscerate them he seems very affectionate with victra so Mm -hmm. he would allow it from maybe one specific person or some like a very specific people but darrow his boyfriend and any future kids him and Victor have together. Maybe Mustang on a good day if he's drunk. Yeah, yeah. So Antonia is already their prisoner at this point. But as we said in the summary, she's not alone. Thistle is with her. You know, former Howler who helped betray Darrow at the Triumph, which... Blech, ugh. Darrow says they have an hour to give him intel. 
and is about to walk away when Thistle calls out, Tell Severo I'm sorry, Darrow, please. He walks back to her and notes, You dyed your hair. Antonia purrs. Little Bronzy just wanted to fit in. Don't blame the runt. Unrealistic expectations. Thistle swears, I'm sorry, Darrow. I didn't know it would go so far. I couldn't have. Yes, you did, Darrow insists. You're not an idiot, and don't be pathetic and claim to be one. I understand how you could do it to me, but Severo was supposed to be there. So were the Howlers. How could you do that to him? To them? She has no answer, so Darrow concludes. We liked you the way you were. Damn, that one, I read it and like, I wept for Thistle. And he also touches her hair as he does it because he notes that she's dyed it and she's also, it's like styled. I can't remember if he says it's straightened or curled, but it's like styled in a specific way and her eyes are lightened. And I think he even says like her skin looks like she's wearing like lighter makeup. In a very sad way, I really identified with Thistle in this moment. Growing up as like the only brown kid in my town with curly hair and growing up in the early 2000s when it was like no body hair, pin straight eyebrows, pin straight hair. I clearly had very curly hair and I had a heckin' unibrow when I was a kid. Like I get it so much, like changing yourself to want to fit in. My heart weeps for her. I think about friendships that I had when I was like in high school or in college and I still thought they were inadequate because they were still with the outcasts and at that point, I still would have dropped my whole personality to be like in with the cool crowd on a very violent and not equal level has done the same thing. I really wept for her in that moment. Like I just, I understood her too well and I hated it. I get it. When I entered high school, I still had giant glasses and frizzy hair and I didn't really put on makeup or do anything with my eyebrows, which I guess were probably too thick for the time. And then I became friends with a girl who was super into makeovers. So it's sort of like a 90s teen movie, <laughs> but it was a girl doing the makeover More on me to, to like make star. me more presentable as her friend. I get a lot of that putting in contacts and changing your hair and wearing makeup and stuff like that. But without the murdery stuff. Yeah, no, it was one of those things that like, when I heard initially that like Thistle was with the Bone Riders, I was like, what the fuck? How? This makes no sense. And like seeing all of this and like that underlying character reasons that we see with her, I was like, oh, okay, it all makes sense. Like it's not okay, but it all makes sense. That moment, though, when Darrow just tells her, we liked you the way you were, that mm -hmm. snaps. Because that's literally what every person who feels that they don't fit in and still feels inadequate with non-mainstream friends needs to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So they leave Thistle and Antonia. They're in adjoining cells and with just bars between them. First of all, like... This is a spaceship brig. Why do the cells just have bars? Right? Like that's kind of, I like listen, okay, I get it. Plot. But <laughs> also, why? This doesn't make any sense. They all go to the command room and Victra has turned up the heat and they're basically just waiting for one of them to cave. Of course, Thistle is about to do so first. Then Antonia starts mocking her and Thistle just kind of fronts her through the bars, which again, why all of this? 
and Antonia grabs hold of her through the bars between their cells that should not exist because this is a fucking spaceship. And why are these like 1890s jail cells? Okay. Like, <laughs> even today's jails have walls between the cells for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> why are future spaceship jail cells still having just bars? Whatever. Fine. God, Pierce, have you ever been on a <laughs> is real- that, Is that the question you're going to ask Pierce Brown at Comic-Con? <laughs> I mean, no, because I know what the answer is plot convenience but also for fuck's sake man antonia grabs hold of her through the bars between their cells and viscerally beats her to death against the bars before darrow and the others can get back to them which just listen okay thistle was an asshole she betrayed them she was bad uh no one deserves that shit broke did but only broke So maybe not no one, but certainly in this case, regardless of Thistle being what she was and doing what she did, that's a hard way to die, to be thinking, I'm going to get back with my friends, they're going to let me live, and then this bitch just, that's not an easy death either, okay? She didn't die right away. I would also make the argument that Antonia deserves to die that way. This is good. I like this. Antonia is not your favorite character. <laughs> There's literally nothing redeemable about Antonia, let's be real. From day one, she is awful. I think the I think- only reason I hate Roke more than Antonia is that Antonia never pretended to not be mm-hmm. the worst bitch in the world. Yes. Like my same thoughts with the Jackal. The like jackal, yeah. the only reason I don't hate him more than Roke is because he never pretended to not be the worst dude in the world. Yeah. He was always like, I am the fucking worst. Hello, it is I, here to eat your flesh. It's me. And be proud of it. I, I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Correct. Victra then beats Antonia within an inch of her life. I'm talking she is picking Antonia's teeth out of her knuckles after yeah. the fact. Yeah, damn. She only stops because Severo yeah. grabs hold of her and gets her in like a wrestling hold. Yeah. Like, physically has to completely immobilize her. Yeah. Also, the worst part is that during this scene, all I could picture was, like, Severo, like, a little koala bear hanging off her back. And then I kept imagining what their sex life was like, and it also involved koalas. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if I had to have these cursed thoughts, y'all gotta suffer with me. He's Mm. the world's most happiest koala, though. Let's be real, though. Victra's mad that Antonia killed Thistle for... For some reasons that are probably correct, like, oh my god, you killed our informant. Because Victor was not a howler, so she doesn't know Thistle very well. I doubt she had much interaction with Thistle. Some, I'm sure, but not much. But this is more about seeing Antonia do these horrible things to another person. And it's PTSD, right? Recalling her own sufferings at the hands of this bitch. I obviously do not fault Victra for doing what she did, but I also know that they were right to stop her because they do need intel from Antonia, which I'm not even sure they ever get, though. So it's also like, eh, maybe they should have just let that happen. It's one of those things that, like, Victra was looking for an excuse. And not only did she fully get one, she also got one that was so upsetting that nobody can blame her, especially knowing that Antonia is not going to break anyway. Also, in the almost immediate wake of this, the deaths keep piling up. 
because the jackal got a hold of Uncle Nero somehow. We never find out how. We never find out anything about why Uncle Nero was anywhere where the jackal get a hold of him. But he mm-hmm. executes him on, you know, live television. I'm putting this in quotes because it's not really he did it live, but the rising ships are still like several weeks out, so they get this broadcast late. So it's not live for them. It's already been done happened 3 weeks ago. But yeah, uh shit hits the fan because Nerol was a favorite of the low colors and Darrow and Victra and Severo are still on Victra's ship dealing with this stuff mustang she's still back with the fleet she's still on the morning star and sefi is leading the movement on the morning star to go after the golds which they find out from mustang because she is there let's be real darrow should have showed up to this situation alone but he brought victor and severo with him which okay fine i get that but also maybe you should have left them behind maybe you should have told them to stay on the ship that you took i don't know Regardless, the Telemannus has also arrived to help Mustang because they're like, we don't work for you, Darrow. We obey Virginia. It really, it's just, she's their family. She's yeah, their daughter. She's Kavix's daughter. She's Daxo and Thraxa. And I think there's other kids that are there, but they aren't named. She's their sister. So they're like, whatever, dude, we're showing up to help Mustang. Thankfully, Darrow is at least able to convince Kavix that his children should stay with the ship's not go with them. So it's only a party of four golds that go into this other hangar where there's like 25,000 people who are crammed into this hangar that's meant for 10,000. And Sefi is like holding court. Can we speak about uh, the fact that there's a hangar that's designed for 10,000 people? A hangar well, shouldn't be designed for any people. It's a hangar. It's like a Star Wars hangar. But that also folds into, first, these numbers feel way too high the armies in song of ice and fire where they're like tywin had fifty thousand people in his army and it's like did he (laughs) well i didn't think the armies in ice and fire were that unrealistic compared to historical when they say you have an army of ten thousand, you don't have ten thousand fighting men you have two thousand fighting men and eight thousand people supporting them i mean yes But they're talking about 25,000 people, and that's not even all of the people on the ship, by the way. Listen, it's a stupid gripe, and I feel like this is a problem with sci-fi and fantasy novels. Not all the time, but a lot of the time, where they are like, let's just throw a gigantic number in there, and no one will ever question it, even though it kind of is unnecessary and doesn't make any sense. That said, despite these numbers feeling way too high, there's a whole bunch of other shit going on. Basically, uh, a bunch of golds have already been scalped and hung, and Cassius has already been mutilated. And uh, so, yikes. Darrow thinks, I shouldn't have bought the golds with me. There's a moment in life where you're walking ahead so intent on your task that you forget to look down until you feel knee-deep in quicksand. I'm right there now, surrounded by an unpredictable mob looking up at the woman with the blood of Aaliyah Snow Sparrow running through her veins. Sefi, this is something that had come up before. I can't remember if it was Mustang or one of the Talmonises was like, Sefi is not her brother. And that is so true. Ragnar never would have led a charge like this, for lack of a better word. And again, like I said already, Darrow shouldn't have brought even just Kavix, Victra, and Severo was a problem. Now, Severo has scampered off to God knows where, we find out in a moment, but even just Victra and Kavix and the other golds that are waiting by their ship, like, they're all in danger. They're also further antagonists to anything Darrow has to say at this point. 
because he's yeah. basically showing up to talk to what should be his own people with his new people behind him. And mm-hmm. that's how they're going to see it. And that's how they do see it. Exactly. And it's literally only because of Severo arriving and claiming Cassius for his own, which again, Cassius did kill his father after all. And he like eggs on the crowd with his question, what do we do to murderers before he shoves Cassius off to hang? He then confesses to having killed a whole bunch of people himself, again, in war, but sure, whatever. He's making a point here and he puts this noose around his own neck and he does the flip off the walkway. Sefi definitely thinks about it for kind of way too long before cutting them down. But hey, now Severo gets a Big Darrow speech moment. Yay! Like, we finally get a Severo Big Darrow speech. I love it. Toward the end, it does seem as if he's speaking to Victor and Victor alone. I really, really freaking love Severo's speech, especially because he's usually so crass. But in this, he's not at all. Like, he's perfect, and I love him. Not a goblin at all. He says... Darrow's wife and my father never met, but they shared a dream, one of a free world, not built on corpses, but on hope, on the love that binds us, not the hate that divides. We have lost many, but we are not broken. We are not defeated. We fight on, but we do not fight for revenge for those who have died. We fight for each other. We fight for those who live. We fight for those who don't yet live. Cassius Albalona killed my father, but I forgive him. Why? Because he was protecting the world he knew, because he was afraid. We are the new age, the new world. And if we're to show the way, then we better damn well make it a better one. I am Severo Albarca, and I am no longer afraid. Chills. Dude, this was like... So good. (gasps) So good. This whole book, I had really been feeling for Severo because the whole book is basically him feeling inadequate because he hasn't been doing good enough while Darrow is gone. And then unfortunately, that being the truth. And this is the moment where he is finally the one who is good enough because he's able to do something that Darrow would have never, ever done because it would have put him at risk in such a way that he wouldn't allow. And it's just, it's so good. Yeah. I don't even know that there's anything else to say about that because the aftermath of this riot after it breaks up, that's pretty lit too. Darrow, Severo and Mustang are chatting in the infirmary where Severo and Cassius are being fixed up. And they realize that Seppi now speaks for all the obsidian, which Mustang notes is impressive because that was never supposed to happen. By the way, they were supposed to be a tribal people that was constantly fighting with each other. Mustang says that they always told us never to let a good crisis go to waste. It's a little unclear which part of the crisis she's talking about, because it's like, "Mm, is it a good thing that Sefi has rallied the obsidian behind her? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know yet. But when Victor arrives, Severo orders everyone out. And when they emerge a little while later, Victor has proposed. Yes! I think the um, Mustang comment about not letting a good crisis go to waste, though, was in this case directed at Sefi and Sefi's ability to do the same thing and not let a good crisis go to waste. Because I think Mustang knows that, like, the Golds have nothing to gain with this, but I think she was just, like, being impressed at Sefi for also having those same ideas and follow through. Just, you know, a bad bitch respecting a bad bitch, even though one bad bitchiness is sort of directly against the others. But you know what? Technicalities. A week later, uh, 
Severo and Victra marry, and Darrow gives Victra away. And when Severo looks into her eyes, Darrow thinks, I'm not even there. None of us are, not to them. The gentleness I see from the raging woman now is all it takes to know how much she loves him. It's not something she'd ever talk about. It's not her way. But the sharp edge she has for everything and everyone is dull tonight. Like she sees Severo as a refuge, as a place where she can be safe. Oh, just be melting. I love them. I love them. And I love how Mickey is doing the ceremony. And Daryl's like, oh, he went from slaver to slave to full member of the rising to wedding efficient. <laughs> what a journey, y'all. <laughs> What a journey. And it's super cute. And I love how Victra takes Severo's name. I think that's something that's important to point out. It's not that shocking. Well, not in real life, <laughs> I suppose, though it's far less common nowadays. We got different rules in fantasy life. <laughs> well, I mean, in this world, it is based on whose family is the oldest, at least in gold culture. So in this case, it should have been Severo taking her name. But Victor's like, yeah, I don't really give a shit about my name. I don't give a shit about my family. They're pretty terrible people. I'm taking your name instead. Yeah, it's like both levels of that. And also, I would say that like about 10 years ago, it would be the equivalent of like a man and a woman getting married and the man choosing to change his last name to match his wife's. It's like that level of like paradigm change. Victor changed the paradigm nominally. <laughs> Minimally. <laughs> Victor Chase, like, 0.001. She gave up her name. She didn't give up her inheritance. But that's the thing, though. Her family is older. It's richer. But it's the older thing, I think, that is pointed out. Anyway, it was really cute. Then they're having this, like, proper party. Okay, I love it. Severo's dancing with Mustang. Kavix is dancing with two, maybe three reds. And he's super drunk. And throwing down i would die for this man seriously i fucking love cavix and sophocles i want that fox as a pet don't tell my <laughs> dogs this whole party is just super hopping everybody's having a blast but holiday comes to fetch darrow because the jackal is calling we finally learned that the gift that darrow gave to the jackal in attica shortly before the triumph was a scepter crowned with a jackal top society pyramid and the jackal admits, I've not parted with your gift. All my life I've been given lions, nothing of my own. What does it say about me that my greatest enemy knows me better than any friend? Well, uh, this is Darrow, and he gave the jackal this particular gift because he wanted him to feel loved, to feel like Darrow was his friend. And Darrow would have been. He would have helped him change like Mustang did, like Cassius might. God damn it, Darrow. Gotta stop believing in people, bud. <laughs> The jackal tells Darrow, I know you lost yourself among us. You yearn to be gold. I saw it in your eyes at the Institute. I saw that fever on Luna when I proposed that we should rule. I saw it when you rode that triumphal chariot up the steps of the Citadel. It's the hunger that makes us forever alone. But Mustang has been in the shadows for a bit, and she steps forward and tells the jackal off. She says, you had love, and you lost it, brother. That is your curse. Then Darrow then tells Darryl him they are coming for him, and when he hangs from the gallows, when the door beneath him opens, when his feet do the devil's dance, then he will realize in that moment that this has all been for nothing, because there will be no one left to pull his feet. 
Damn. Seriously? Ooh, Darrow. That'd be mean. Deserved, but mean. But... Once the call is over, they should obviously go back to the party, but instead, Darrow just wants to stay with her, and honestly, it's really sweet. I was going to say something important, something memorable, but I've forgotten it in her eyes. That gulf that divided us is still there, filled with questions and recrimination and guilt. But it's only part of love, part of being human. Everything is cracked, everything is stained except the fragile moments that hang crystalline in time and make life worth living. You get it, Darrow! That's a Yum. good line, though. It really is. Okay. It really is. I can't decide which was my favorite in that section. Like, was it that line or was it nobody's going to be there to pull your feet? Because I think it might be nobody's going to be there to pull your feet. <laughs> is it the mean it. one or the sweet one? <laughs> I think it's the mean one just because of how it comes back at the end of this section. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of really? getting closer to the end of this section... Now, war comes to the core in chapters 57 through 62. It has been 500 years since a foreign fleet has passed beyond the border of Rubicon beacons that encircle the innermost domain of the Sovereign. But now, two months and three weeks after the Rising smashed the Sword Armada, they sail past the transporters on their approach to not Mars, but Luna. They're soon hailed by a diplomatic envoy, but Darrow immediately and kind of hilariously just refuses, saying that if the Sovereign wants to speak with him, she can do it herself, not through a lackey's mouth, because they're here for war, not words. But before the fight begins, we learn that they've decided to release Cassius, something that Severo has apparently agreed to, but which Orion questions when she figures it out. Darrow tells Orion that he doesn't want Cassius's throat slit in the midst of battle and insists that Cassius will not rejoin the war, though for good measure he makes Cassius promise as much before they do in fact release him. Of course, Antonia is in a cell nearby, mocking the idea that they might actually be letting Cassius go, but they do. And after a moment's hesitation, he steps out of his cell and even shakes hands with Darrow, Mustang, and Severo. But then Cassius pulls Severo toward him and strips his pistol from its holster. Then, at Antonia's urging, and despite Darrow and Mustang's protest, Cassius shoots Severo seven fucking times. Darrow falls to the floor, begging Severo not to die, but the life leaks from him and his pulse fades away, while Antonia lets loose a mocking howl, because that's the type of bitch she is. Cassius then aims the gun at Darrow, but Mustang stops him from pulling the trigger with a desperate reminder that the Sovereign would want Darrow alive. <sighs> Cassius and Antonia trust Darrow up in a prisoner rig and then toss him, Mustang, and Severo's body into the container that was meant to sneak Cassius off the Morning Star. Soon they're on the provided shuttle, which Orion has cleared for departure as promised, and the moment they're clear, Cassius transmits an Olympic distress signal that is answered by none other than Aja Augrimis herself. Because of course Aja is still alive. If you don't see a big bad die on page and all. First things first, Cassius makes them promise that no harm will come to Virginia. Mustang which Aja agrees to before giving him the order to dock on the Lion of Mars. Because of course the Jackal knew Darrow wasn't actually going to Mars and is with his entire fleet on the far side of Luna waiting to spring a trap on the Rising fleet. Seriously, can nothing go right for the good guys? Once aboard the Jackal ship, they are greeted by a group of bone riders, including nasty piece of work Lilith and Tharsis Valii Wrath, aka older brother of Darrow's deceased sometimes friend Tactus. They banter about buying Severo's bones and what to do with Virginia, but Lilith promises Cassius that no one will touch his prizes. Well, 
except for the Reaper, because before taking them to the Sovereign, the Jackal is coming to collect a little debt. Darrow's right hand. Or rather, he lets, or what if he gets? Cassius to collect that debt for him. Really, what else did we expect from someone who was wearing Fitchner's ribcage as armor? And then, they're finally on their way to the Dragon Maw, aka the near-mythical underground bunker from which the Sovereign can wage war even if Luna falls to ruin. The war room is packed with people, not just the Sovereign, but her grandson Lysander, Aja, two Olympic Knights, and ten Praetorians. The Knights greet Cassius and converse with him as if there isn't a giant battle happening just off-planet. But it isn't long before Mustang inserts herself into the conversation, striking more than a little fear into the Sovereign with her tales of Cephi, Queen of the Obsidian, who is on her way to lead a ground attack on the Citadel. In fact, Mustang has no problem informing them that the Obsidians are already on Luna, having arrived in grain ships from Earth hours before. This news causes Octavia to send seven of the Praetorian Guards away to reinforce the surface, and once they're gone, Aja seals the Sanctum up tight before they attend the other matter, that being the matter of Antonia, who, as we all know, is a huge bitch who also happened to abandon the Sword Armada in the midst of the battle. Because she's Antonia, she at first thinks they're going to command her, though for what, who the heck knows, and instead receives a death sentence, one that she begs the Jackal to save her from. Ha ha ha! <laughs> she has no ships and no more pretty face, so Aja dispatches her forthwith. Unfortunately, that means now it's Darrow's turn, and they plan to broadcast his execution live. Normally, an Olympic knight would carry out the sentence, but Darrow taunts the jackal, who then insists that he wants to do it himself. The sovereign defers to him, which is odd to say the least, especially as she defers to him again when he insists that he use Severo's gun so that Darrow can go like his uncle. The broadcast goes live, and the Sovereign begins to speak his sentence to the world, until Darrow interrupts her with a howl, at which point she nods to the Jackal, permission to carry out the unfinished sentence. Only the gun backfires, because plots within plans within plots within plans, y'all. So Cassius has been on their side the whole time. He takes out the three Praetorian guards and releases Mustang and Darrow's prison vests, allowing Darrow to withdraw the knife that has been hidden inside this whole time and stab the Sovereign right in the gut, following by reclaiming his razor from the jackal and using it to stake him to the floor. This isn't the end, though. Not even close. Lysander might be a child intent on protecting his grandmother, such as he can, but there are still two other Olympic knights to contend with in addition to Aja, who, as we all know, is the deadliest person in the whole dang solar system. And sure enough, she's giving them a fight for their money it is the understatement of the series. There might be three of them, but Aja quickly wounds Cassius and then Mustang as they try to protect a one-handed Darrow, and the situation seems more than a little bit dire. Until Cassius tosses Darrow a syringe, which he plunges into his best friend Severo's chest. He punches it into dead Severo's chest through the combat vest, which is made of carved flesh. And he shoots him up with a fuck ton of snake bite and waking him up from his death that was totally faked this whole time? Guys? What? Not only that, but he springs up and because he's Severo, he shouts, I'm going to kill you, Aja! I'm going to kill you in your face! As he swoops up a pulse fist, firing at her, then using his razor to jab her in the back as she spins away from Cassie's attack. And then... With four of them coming at her from all sides, because, oh yeah, by the way, they, they like, super killed those other two knights in, like, three seconds, because who cares? 
they finally wear Aja a grimace down with Severo unceremoniously lopping off her head at the end. All that's left now is Octavia, who is bleeding out on the floor nearby, Lysander still attempting to guard her. He backs off when Mustang orders him to drop his weapon, and Octavia focuses on Cassius and simply asks him, why? Of course, we all know what she's really asking, and it turns out that Cassius, quote-unquote, betrayed her because she played a part in the deaths of his family, in that she cooperated with and kept silent about the Jackal murdering more than 40 members of House Bologna. To the very end, she still insists that she merely did what she had to do to keep the peace, though her very last words are that they must stop Adria's. Dara is chilled by her passing, her words, her fear, and dread rises in him when the jackal begins to laugh. As it turns out, they changed the paradigm again. <gasps> yeah. If this was a drinking game, I would be dead. I know, right? Because, oh yeah, they're on their way to Luna all this time. And because Darrow, gonna Darrow, apparently letting Cassius go simply because he uh, claims he's done with this war. Except, as we said, even after shaking Darrow and Mustang's hands and telling Savro that Fitchner was brave, when Cassius clasps Savro's hand, he straight up shoots him to death, quote unquote. Okay, okay. I'm just going to pause for a second and say that if for some weird reason you are listening to this episode and have not finished Morningstar, stop listening now, which I guess you already fucked up by listening to that summary. But (laughs) yeah, we already did it. Sorry, guys. If you have not finished this book, I really hope you're no longer listening because all of us here have obviously finished Morningstar. And while we aren't going to jump ahead too much here, yes, we all know Severo is not actually dead. But damn y'all, the first time you read this, seems like he is, right? So real quick, I want to talk about how we all felt reading this for the first time. Let's start with Nick first and then Nami, because you guys were the most recent to read this. And then Jonathan and I can give our thoughts kind of bouncing off you guys. (laughs) I mean, I immediately started messaging with you. I messaged somebody in the group chat, but kept it as vague as I could without spoiling anything. I believe your actual message was fucking Cassius and fucking Darrow. What the fuck? Yes, exactly. And I remember Uh, this going, what? What have they done now? And then immediately just like private messaging with Tara being like, what the fuck? Partially because like, and credit to Pierce Brown for subverting me a little bit here. Because I was, like, so frustrated that, once again, we were in this position where, like, oh, Darrow gets to a certain level and then gets shut back down again and everything gets taken away from him. But, yeah, in the moment, I was just freaking out. That was so fucked. I think for me, the worst part was that literally up until this moment, I had been live messaging the chat about how I was slowly starting to forgive Cassius. And I was like, what the fuck? How did you guys let me do this? Like, how did you not say anything? And the worst part is that once I realized, like, what had actually happened, that like it was a fake out on Cassius's part, I, like, went back and I reread it. And it's wild because, like, it reads so differently when you know both of those things. But, like, when you don't know, it really reads like Darrow fully is also like, what the fuck is happening? But when you do know, you can see Darrow being like, that wasn't the plan. What is happening? And you're like, oh, he means the big plan. And it's like, no, he means the tiny plan. Plots within plans within plots within plans and plans within plots. Sir, I cannot keep track. 
I do think though that it, you, it goes a little beyond unreliable narrator. Oh, because absolutely. I think that there are things that Daryl would not be having those thoughts or doing those things if he actually had a plan for this. And because our only POV is Darrow, I think there is a little bit of issue with the writing in that sequence in order to make it believable that Severo is dead in that moment. The writing is not actually consistent with Darrow knowing that Severo is not dead. Yeah. There's points within the writing that Darrow knows but overall, it is written as though Darrow is acting this out for outsiders versus it being his inner monologue. Exactly. So it is only for himself. Yes. He's getting in character, Nick. He's a method <laughs> actor. You're right. You're right. What was I thinking, Nami? You're an well, actor. You should know this. I, I should know this. Like, I do this every role that I take on. I'm like, I have to be 100% in the moment at all times even if nobody's watching me. <laughs> even if nobody's listening to your inner thoughts. Especially <laughs> if nobody is listening to your thoughts, just in case Antonia can now mind read. That's true. Yeah, I kind of feel like whoever was the main editor for this, they should have read it, and then they should have read it again, and they should have been like, mm, leave out some of these inner monologue things where he's thinking about Severo being dead because on reread, on one reread, let alone me, I've read this book like four or five times now. It's completely like, oh, come on. Now that I know he's not dead, come on. I think unfortunately, like something had to be sacrificed in this moment for it to work narratively. Like either you could have made it work narratively on a reread that you can reread it and everything would draw together and you'd be like yes this is perfect he knew or it could work on the initial read where you could be like yes i am totally fooled but you could not have both because of the first person perspective of darrow and i think ultimately the choice that pierce and the editors made was making it hit correctly the first time by fully fooling you and i think that was a choice that they had to make because there was no way to make it work Yeah, the only way that it could have worked the other way, which doesn't make sense with how the rest of the book has been written, would have been to make Antonio all of a sudden the point of view character. (laughs) Yeah. Alternatively, have you considered um, Severo's fake corpse as the point of view character? (laughs) (laughs) I think that would be very compelling. Or just omit some passages and you don't have as... I would say compelling of a, oh God, everything's going wrong kind of moment. But we have plenty of examples in this book where we don't get every detail. But I think that couldn't have worked here for a very specific reason. And that is because anytime somebody Darrow cares about has died, he has dwelled. I agree with what you were just saying about you could either sacrifice one or the other, Mm -hmm. but you have to make a choice. And I think... I understand why Pierce did it that way. But after I found out the reveal, I was like laying awake at night going, wait a second. He would not have had those particular Mm -hmm. thoughts. So it goes beyond the idea of just an unreliable narrator to he's effectively actively lying either to himself or to what is actually the audience in order to make that happen. And Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a... I still think it was a great moment. You know, there's some fantastic writing and storytelling here, but it is a little bit of a cheat, right? In order to be able to pull that off, you have to lie to the audience. 
And it's I not Daryl lying to us because if it was Daryl lying to us, that would be a different thing. That would be, he's an unreliable narrator. He lied to us. It is written from his POV. And so in order for us to believe that Severo is dead, he has to have thoughts that he would never have if Severo is not dead. I mean, for my part, I can't remember exactly where I was or what time of night I read this back in 2016 when I first read this book. But I remember being like, fuck, I can't put this down now because up to this point, I was with you, Nami. Severo, fave character, my goblin, I love him. I can't handle this. And I need to see that they at least get their revenge on Cassius, this asshole, for killing Severo of all people, my most loyal, beloved friend of Darrow. Also a little bit gross, but that's okay. I love him so much. And later I had friends who I convinced to read the book. One of my friends was like, I'm not reading it anymore. When Severo quote unquote died, he was like, I'm done. I'm not reading this anymore. And I was like, can you just please keep reading? But like, how do you say that, you know, without revealing, just keep reading, please. Like, I promise you that I'm not going to say it all turns out right in the end because that's kind of spoilery, but like, I promise you it's worth finishing the book and he refused to finish it. I think maybe eventually he did, but like, it was so maddening to be like, finish the book. And I'm sure that he is not the only person that read this book, loving Severo and getting to that point and be like, fuck this shit, throw it against a wall. Well, that's 100% what my reaction in Walking Dead was when they kill Glenn. I was like, all right, I'm fucking done. I remember when I read it, I was shocked at first. And then I said, no, this has to be a put up job. I think the reason I actually felt that way is because literally the night before I had just watched The Living Daylights, the Timothy Dalton James Bond, where they did exactly the same thing. And I just had this hunch and I was proven correct. I wasn't sure, but I just, so I did not have the same visceral shock as everyone else. As I said, no, this isn't how it's ending. There's a plan here, but I don't know what it is yet. I am 97% sure that I spoiled the fact that Severo exists in the sequel books to myself and somehow fully just like no thoughts, head empty, only disprage, which is what I'm calling the combined feelings of despair and rage that I experienced last night when I was reading this at 11.30 at night. And I was like, fuck, I have to stay awake and finish the book now, don't I? Well, I'm glad you did. I fully, like, I am 97% sure I knew Severo was in the next book and everything. And I was still like, what? He's dead? I believe this. And fucking Cassius, right? (laughs) Fucking Cassius. Fucking Cassius and fucking Darrow. Okay, so listen, yes, we all know Severo is still actually alive. But for now, it's time to talk about the other person who's still actually alive, which is Aja. And not only is Aja still alive, which first of all, how? She fell down like a crevice? She's really good at hiking. Like, such plot convenience, much wow. But also, like, we didn't see a body. We knew this was coming. Like, there was no way in hell she was dead without a body. I really even think, though, when she fell down that crevice, Dara was like, "Mm, didn't see her die. I betcha she's still alive. It was, like, surprising in the the how-the-fuck sort of way, but not surprising in that she was alive because 
again, yeah. Darrow at that point was like, mm, I didn't see her die. So I bet she escaped somehow. But that's like an extra story I'd like to see. Pierce, please write yeah. this novella about how Aja the fuck escaped this crevice that she built out. Yeah, or at least a graphic novel. I mean, come on. Yeah. Also, as we know, the Jackal somehow already knew they were on their way to Luna. So he's there too, which sigh. I don't know, man. I like some of this is like, okay. I get that the Jackal supposedly knows Darrow, but also I feel like there should have been some sort of like additional explanation as to how he knew because. Maybe we'll get a novel that's like, you know how Stephanie Meyer wrote God. the Twilight book from Edward's perspective? Maybe we'll get this from the Jackal's perspective. I would actually really enjoy that. But also at the same time, I don't know how anybody could realistically write from the POV of somebody that unhinged mm-hmm. without me also being very concerned for the writer's state of mind. I mean, I try to think of other authors who have read from really unhinged. I guess Dexter is the closest, I think. But even then, though, he's not. Not the way yeah. that the Jackal is. Yeah, no. I mean, yes, I get the kind of comparison, but also, no, the Jackal is, he bad. And he's just always been bad and always going to be bad. He is literally wearing Fitchner's ribcage as armor. And he like carved the story of Fitchner's death and the triumph into the ribs. What the fuck, man? Pathetic level shit. Gotta give credit where it's due. Holy shit. Bringing that just elite goth vibe. Nose fashion. God, he's so awful. Anyway, Cassius wants Mustang spared, but also totally cuts off Darrow's hand when the Jackal tells him to. All I have to say is, no, not the hand, not his Helldiver hand. Help. For anybody who's listening to this who has never seen Shrek, how have you not seen Shrek? Your homework assignment is now to watch Shrek so you understand that reference. Helldiver hand. We have heard so much about these fucking hands, and now his hand, one of them, is cut off. Actually, do we ever know for sure that Darrow's right-handed? My point being, they're asking Cassius which hand is his dominant hand. Is he actually left-handed, and did Cassius lie? In the fight with Aja, he's one-handed and also not using his dominant hand. Like, I think he actually says that. Fine, whatever. I think that would have been a fun, as far as I remember slash know, it's not something that was ever mentioned before that he is specifically right-handed. So it would have been a fun thing for Cassius to be asked that question and why and have them take his non-dominant hand. Or he, it could be like Inigo Montoya and he could say, I'm not actually right-handed. I mean, listen, you know what they say about dual wielders? Um, and we've made it very clear that... uh if Darrow knew that dual wielding was an option, he would have been dual wielding this entire time. This is absolutely a joke about how Loki and Hela from the MCU are both bisexual because they dual wield weapons. Oh, Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, anyway, they cut off one of his hands, Darrow's poor hands that he's so proud of all the fucking time. But they do have to deliver Darrow, Mustang, and Severo's body to the Sovereign even after they have mutilated Darrow. And once they're in her secret lair, which is known as the Dragon's Maw, everyone there is praising Cassius. 
The Sovereign even claims, you remind me of a Lorne when he was young. And Darrow remembers. I know she once said to Virginia that she reminded her of herself. The affection is more real than the Jackal has for his men, but she's still a collector, still using love and loyalty as a shield to protect herself. The fact that they're similar in that way is telling, but anyway, Mustang causes a bit of a stir when she informs them that the 10,000 Obsidian landed on Luna hours ago via grain ships from Earth, and most of the guards rush out to deal with this. Now, there are still several guards, three, I think, to be exact, two or three Olympic Knights, and Aja there, along with Cassius, Antonia, and the Jackal, but... Antonia is removed immediately due to her abandoning Roke and the fleet at the Battle of Ilium, which, bye forever, bitch, no one will miss you. Like, Bye, Felicia. This is the actual triumph of the series. The thing about this is, is that they take the time to do this, which seems a bit kind of out of place and odd. Like, why wouldn't you have waited until after the fact? But I get plot convenience again they send the praetorians out seven of the ten and aja seals the sanctum behind them and they just like immediately turn to the antonia matter which again like i said kind of seems okay like you could have taken care of her later i think this just is like a we gotta get rid of antonia somehow real quick because otherwise she's another person for them to fight to me, the way I actually read it was like Octavia being unwilling to let somebody unworthy share in her success, like her moment of success, because okay. that's what this next part was, right? Like this next part was that like everybody on screen, everybody who could possibly end up in this broadcast would inherently share in the success. And Antonia was not fucking worthy. So Octavia was like, no, we get rid of her now. She does not deserve to be here which is how I was reading it. And I love how she steps forward and is like, yes, what? Thinking she's going to be commended. And they're just like, yeah, no, you're a coward who abandoned your fleet. And she tries to shit on Roke. And Octavia's like, now you're shitting on his friend? Pointing to Cassius? The fuck is wrong with you? Antonia then turns to the Jackal and is like, but, but, but. And the Jackal's like, "Mm, I'd rather have the loyalty of a dog than a coward. Oof. It would be woof. <laughs> you know bad when the jackal burns you that bad. I mean, actually, no, we don't know that. The jackal burns everyone, but that also, like, just felt extra oof. Not me looking into the distance saying, oh, that's rough, buddy. I mean, her face is now ugly and everything. No, but, like, literally, like, when she comes back and she, like, looks at the jackal and she's like, I'll get it fixed. And he's like, no, you don't have to. And he, like, kisses her and stuff. And I was like, Bleh bombs everywhere full manipulation jackal because like darrow was like oh yeah jackal knows that antonia wants love but he's manipulating her with it and i was like i was like yeah well done bud i mean to be completely honest i don't know that the jackal was lying because everything we read about lilith is that she is like not attractive and and also some of that is probably from like bad personality shit There's never a hint that, like, the Jackal and Lilith are romantically involved, though. No, not on his part. I think she's totally obsessed with him. Oh, well, yeah. No, I think that, too. But I think the Jackal was never involved back, which is why the thing with Antonia was, like, particularly, like, wait a second. Well, but I also think that the Jackal doesn't love anybody. Oh, no, no. He was fully manipulating Antonia by giving her... 
affection in that way because he knew that she needed that to follow him whereas Lilith did not need that so he was just like yeah whatever pine away bitch I do think Darrow was wrong I think that Jackal was being honest when he was like yeah I don't give a shit about your scars or the way you look but that's because Mm -hmm. the Jackal didn't have any sort of attraction to her like he has no sort of attraction to anybody Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see so what you mean. when this happens, Darrow's thought is like she has no ships and she has no face, but the latter doesn't matter. The, having no pretty face, that doesn't matter to the jackal. I really don't think it does. What he is judging is that she is a coward. She didn't do what she had to do. I'm sure he probably thinks Roke was a coward too for unaliving himself. I think I would technically disagree with that. I think he might think that Roke was incompetent or, like, incapable. But I think, ultimately, he would say that, like, you know, he he owned his fuck up and was like, my only choice is to go down with my ship. So I think, ultimately, I think when I come da- came down to it in this situation, I think the Jackal would respect Roke's decision more than what Antonia did because going down with your ship when you have lost a battle isn't cowardice, it's ownership. It's ownership for any, I'm I'm no longer on video because my internet sucks, but I am doing finger guns um, naturally. I could not stop myself, but yeah, no, that's a really good point. I, you're right. When the Jackal says that he doesn't care about her appearance, I think in that moment, that really is actually true because he doesn't, he cares about her loyalty and her use. Good news is she gone now. I mean, and also, she had kind of a rough end, too. Aja chokes her to death. Like, you literally could have just used your razor or a gun or something. They specify that it takes, like, a minute for her to die. That's a long-ass time when you're choking. I mean, at least maybe she's into that. I don't know, man. (laughs) Sorry, that was awful. (laughs) I can't even. Y'all can't see my face. I'm very disappointed in myself. Please be aware. (laughs) Now that Antonia is gone... Bye forever, bitch. Nobody cares. Of course, the Sovereign plans on broadcasting Dara's execution and gives a big, dumb Sovereign speech. But first, we do get Dara's uh, big, dumb Sovereign speech uh, preemptive monologue. This is it, Dara muses. And swarming towards me, this moment, this fragment of time is my life in summary. It is my shout to the wind, but I want no shout. Let that be for Roke. Let that be for the golds. Give me something more, something they cannot understand. Give me the rage of my people, the wrath of all people in bondage. As the sovereign recites her sentence, as the jackal waits to deliver it, as Mustang kneels on the ground, as Cassius watches me from among the Praetorians and knights, waiting, and as Asia sees me look to the tall blonde knight, she steps forward in trepidation because she knows something is wrong. I throw back my head and howl. I howl for my wife, for my father, for Ragnar and Quinn and Pax and Neryl, for all the people I've lost, for all they would take. I howl because I am a hell diver of Lycos. I am the Reaper of Mars, and I have paid for access to this bunker with my flesh, all so I could come before Octavia, all so that I might either die with my friends or see our enemies fought to justice. Because, oh yeah, Cassius was on their side this whole time. 
literally like in this moment where he's like Cassius watches me and Asia sees me look to the tall blonde knight I like stopped at that exact moment and I like went back and reread it and I'm like why is he looking at Cassius huh and then I kept reading and I was like fuck the tall blonde knight with his curly hair and the dimple in his chin <laughs> his boyfriend Seriously, though, ah, Cassius has been with them this whole time, and a fight ensues, but while they take out the guards and the other Olympic knights, Octavia is injured, but Aja fights on, and even Darrow, granted Sans one hand, Mustang and Cassius together aren't enough to take her down. Real quick, I just want to say, listen, Aja's not a good person, right? We know that. She's on the bad side of things. But god damn, she is a good fighter. The fact that at every turn she bests everything sent against her. And in this case, yes, Darrow is missing supposedly his sword hand. But like even in this case, it is three against one. Cassius is the morning knight. He is a good fucking fighter. Mustang, yep. she's not necessarily known for her fighting skills, but she has proved that she is a decent fighter okay not to mention that darrow is the only other person to have trained with lorne like even mm -hmm. with only one hand like he's still formidable and there is nothing about this fight dynamic that says that asia would have definitively lost if darrow had both hands like i don't believe she would have i think they still would have needed Severo to make it happen which is the crazy part like she's yep. not a good person by any sense of the word, but she is great. She yep. is so great. It is wild. This I mean, is one of those moments where my biases are showing and I'm like, yes, I support yeah. women's wrongs. Aja Algrimis, I, I I love you, ma'am. <laughs> she's this series sort of the morning, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's the <laughs> artist. And the scene was similar. <laughs> she really is, yeah. You know, Howland stabbed her in the back, i.e. Severo. <laughs> Severo is well, Alan Reed confirmed. Speaking of that, it is time for Severo to wakey wakey. First of all, the first time you read this, okay, like when Darrow goes, runs over to Severo and Aja's like, you coward, you're running. And Darrow's like, I'm not running. Fuck you. I'm going to get my friend who totally is alive. <laughs> And stab him in the chest with a syringe full of snake bite and maybe possibly give him a heart attack. Like, let's hope. Let's hope that that doesn't uh, happen. I would like to specify that there is a moment when they are walking out later when Severo absolutely is, like, vibrating. And they're like, dude, what's wrong with you? And he's like, I'm having a heart attack, boys. Chill. Like, he's not okay. At least it waited until then, though. Yeah, right. That was polite <laughs> of a heart attack, honestly. So... Finally, the four of them, it takes four fucking people to bring Aja down. And again, honestly, huge props to Aja because while she might have been a terrible person, damn, could she obviously fight. Mm -hmm. God, I love her. At the end, Octavia asked Cassius why, as in why did he betray them? Well, it turns out she is the one who ordered his entire family killed. I mean, listen, we all knew it wasn't Darrow who did that shit, but still, damn, Octavia. So he tells her, because you lied. You ask me why? It is because you are without honor. 
I swore an oath as an Olympic knight to honor the compact, to bring justice to the society of man. You swore the same, Octavia, but you forgot what that meant. Everyone has. That is why this world is broken. Maybe the next one can be better. Go Cassius. That's the secret hollow cube that Darrow gave to him to take back to his cell. A little bit like, "Mm, Darrow, really? Some dude that you've had in captivity, you send him back to his cell drunk. Drunk, by the way. With his hollow cube of his family dying. Like, it shows the whole thing, by the way. I sort of feel... Cassius always gets to watch his family being murdered by people. First, he got to watch the yeah. video of Julian, Julian getting it, and now he gets to watch this other one. It's a special no, skill. I feel real bad for Cassius, and also glad that apparently they don't have social media in this world yeah. because he would have been vague booking on Facebook <laughs> or like tweeting and ruining the whole thing. Oh my God. All right, all right. Octavia is definitely in the last moments of her life at this point, but she uses them to tell Darrow and the others that they must stop Adrius. And Darrow is chilled by her passing and what she is saying. And the jackal starts fucking laughing. And of course, it couldn't be all that uh, easy, right? Could it? But let's see how the end of Morningstar plays out with chapters 63 through 65 and an epilogue. Why does the jackal start cackling as the sovereign dies? Well, because Adrius do be Adriasing. And before he reveals exactly what he's been up to, obviously he has to wax on about how he turned cannibal at the Institute just to make the point that if no one sacrifices, then no one survives. And somehow, from this little tidbit, our heroes glean that all of those nukes the Jackal stole aren't actually on Mars. They're on Luna. And when Mustang tries to reason with him, he simply taps a little calm that he had implanted in his ear, convenient, and orders Lilith to detonate one, killing more than five million people in one fell swoop. What is it that he wants exactly? Why, for Darrow to martyr himself and then to be crowned sovereign, of course. And when Mustang tells him no, well, he simply detonates another bomb. At this point, Darrow's friends look to him. And while part of him believes that his death is not the end, but the beginning of something new, he knows that Mustang wants him to choose life. And he also realizes that his friends have made him want to live, want to build. So when the jackal presses him for his answer, Tarot punches him in the fucking throat instead and finally divests Adrius Augustus of the body part he should have taken in the first place way back at the Institute, his bloody damn tongue. About freaking time, Darrow. Unfortunately, Lilith just keeps detonating bombs, and when Darrow calls up Victra, they find out if the Jackal ship has shielding that prevents them from jamming the signal or using EMPs, which come on now, not shocking. Eventually, the old EMP trick was going to stop working, guys. But as they're discussing how the heck they can stop this nuclear slaughter, Lysander, of all people, steps up, suggesting they hail his godfather, the Ash Lord, that is, and ask for his help. 
Mustang knows the boy is right and immediately hails the gold creators of Octavia's fleet to tell them that the bombings are being orchestrated by Lilith from the Lion of Mars, and the only way to stop the complete destruction of Luna is to stop her. Before the Ash Lord or anyone else can voice too much protest, Lysander insists that they have no time for recrimination, that Mustang is not a traitor but their conqueror, and to prove as much he hands her his grandmother's scepter. And sure enough, this ploy works. The Lion of Mars is fired on from all sides by loyalists and rebel alike, though unfortunately after it is defeated, the steel leaves the bomb moon in turmoil and the gold armada fractured as praetors flee back to their home planets on their personal ships. So Darrow, Mustang, Severo, and Cassius might be battered and bloody, but there's still more work to be done. Lysander joins them as they leave the bunker and make their way to the Senate chamber, collecting a following of Praetorian guards, obsidians, and greys along the way, and facing little opposition due to their constantly growing following. Well, and because Mustang is totes carrying Octavia's severed head and her dawn scepter, while Darrow has the jackal draped over his shoulder. Uh, lol. When they arrive in the Senate chamber... It appears as if an election was already taking place, but Mustang immediately takes the podium. As Darrow is the bridge to the low colors, so Mustang needs to be the bridge to the high colors. And when she declares the beginning of a new age, first Darrow, then Cassius, then several fall to their knees, and they are quickly followed by Lysander, the Praetorians, and finally the senators, all hailing Mustang as the new sovereign. What a great ending that could be. But we're lucky enough to get even more as we actually see the Jackal die on page as he is freaking finally hanged for his crimes. And in what is possibly the most heartbreaking moment, Mustang does pull his feet. This doesn't mean the war is completely over and done with. The Ash Lord has hide off to rally Mercury and Venus. Gold Warlords are trying to stake their own claims, and Luna is a disaster of riots, food shortages, and spreading radiation. But hey, Darrow got his hand reattached, and even though he knows change will come slower than the Sons of Ares expected, at least the society won't fall into full-blown anarchy. Well, hopefully not anyway. It's in this bland of turmoil and hope that Darrow says goodbye to Cassius, who is off to see what else is out there with Lysander by his side, no less. And then Darrow and Mustang finally get to fly off to Earth for a little alone time, or so Darrow thinks, until a ship lands on their secluded beach in the Pacific Northwest, a ship full of Barkas, Telemannuses, and Darrow's own family, including his mother, who is carrying a golden-haired child, Pax, his and Mustang's son. What the fuck? The TLDR is that Pax was born nine months after the lion's reign on Mars, while Darrow was in captivity. But Mustang wanted to make sure that Darrow could do more than break, that he could build. And then later, Deanna insisted that the secret continue, because if Darrow knew he had a son, he wouldn't do what needed to be done. But now he can be both sword and father, a builder as well as a destroyer, and he can't wait to tell Pax of the rage of Ares, the strength of Ragnar, the honor of Cassius, the love of Severo, the loyalty of Victra, and the dream of Eo, the girl who inspired Darrow to live for more. The end. We learn why the Jackal was allowed in the Sovereign's presence armed at that, and it was because she had bigger things to worry about, like the nukes he had hid all over Luna. The Jackal tells them, I never wanted to nuke Mars. 
I was born on Mars. It is my birthright, the prize from which all things flow. For helium is the blood of the empire. This moon, this skeleton orb is, like Octavia, a treacherous old crone sucking at the marrow of the society, crowing about what was instead of what can be, and Octavia let me ransom it, just as you will, because you are weak and you did not learn that you should have at the Institute. To win, you must sacrifice. Cool motive, still murder. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, TLDR, Jackal is a cool motive, still murder. Jackal is still... Where's your motive, bud? Also murder. Sometimes we just do enjoy an unapologetically evil bastard. I would almost rather it be an unapologetically evil bastard that I can hate than it being a villain who I'm like, oh, God, I mean, you're the villain, but like, it's a killmonger in Black Panther. You're the villain, but you got a point. That being said, though, I think... There is a place for both types of villains. And I think that while I find it more ultimately satisfying to have a narrative that at least has one villain who is very understandable to the point where it's either, oh, I get your motives or, oh, no, this could have been me or, oh, no, you do have the right idea, but the wrong methods, like something like that. I always find that more compelling, but there's also just something very, very fun about an unapologetically evil bastard. And I think in a series that was so full of villains that you could understand how they became villains based off of how they were raised, Nero Augustus in general, like Mm -hmm. Octavia and the way she behaves, Aja Algrimis, the Furies in general, literally all of gold society, this entire book is full of villains that we can understand because they're all preserving their power Mm -hmm. and anybody who tries to act like they wouldn't also try to preserve their own power in a situation is lying to themselves. We have so many levels of nuanced villain in this story that the Jackal is low key a breath of fresh air. Cause I do just love this crazy bastard coming into this place and be like, my daddy never hugged me. So fuck the world. So I ate people. My daddy never believed in me, so instead I ate people, so you should feel bad for me. Mustang tries so hard to be nice to him, and at this point, she actually tries to talk him out of detonating his bombs, which is, you know, the wrong course of action because he's just tired of her. So, again, he detonates one and says he will continue unless Darrow kills himself, and, of course, it looks like the Rising is the one who is detonating these bombs, by the way. So it's like a twofold, Mm. because it looks like the Rising is the one doing this damage, and on top of that, the Jackal's like, not gonna stop unless Daryl unalives himself. The absolute worst. Should have killed him before Octavia, bud. His friends look to Daryl, but he's in a distant place, listening to the moan of the wind through the tunnels of Lycos, smelling the dew on the gears in the early morning, knowing that Ao will be waiting for me when I come home. Like she waits for me now at the end of the cobbled road, as Narrow does, as Pax and Ragnar and Quinn and, I hope, Roke, Lorne, Tactus and the rest of them do. It would not be the end to die. It would be the beginning of something new. I have to believe that. But my death would leave the Jackal here in power. It would leave him with power over those I love, over all I've fought for. I always thought I would die before the end. 
I trudged on knowing I was doomed, but my friends had breathed love into me. They breathed my faith back into my bones. They've made me want to live. They've made me want to build. So Daryl straight up punches the jackal in the throat, pins him down, and knowing that his evil and his lies are the work of the jackal's tongue, he just straight up rips it out. Satisfying. So good. So satisfying. Finally, man, honestly, like, get rid of that shit. Just honestly, like, the moment he punched him in the throat, I was like, yes. That is, in that moment, that's the only way to respond. The only thing I love more than an unapologetically evil bastard is an unapologetically evil bastard getting his fucking due. Amazing. Rip out his tongue. Now, granted, that doesn't stop whatever's going on. Like, in the end, they need the Ash Lord's help to stop Lilith because she's still just detonating bombs left and right. I don't even think she knows at this point that the Jackal's tongue has been ripped out. She's just, she was told to do what she did, so she's doing it because she's a fucking robot or whatever. Not literally, but figuratively. Octavia's grandson actually suggests that they go to the Ash Lord before also putting his grandmother's scepter in Mustang's hands and naming her their conqueror. I don't think there's any reason to cover their very brief conversation with the society slash gold fleet that is above Luna. It doesn't matter, right? They kind of try to fight against the idea that they should help them. But in the end, it's like, Either you help us or everybody dies. Society collapses. The jackal's tongue has been ripped out. He's a prisoner. Octavia's dead. Aja is dead, etc. So Darrow, Severo, Cassius, and Mustang leave the Dragon's Maw with Lysander in tow. I don't even know if in tow is the right word. He just follows them. The jackal's draped over Darrow's shoulder and Mustang is carrying the scepter and Octavia's severed head. I love you all, Darrow tells them, no matter what happens. Even Cassius? Severo asks. Especially me today, Cassius says. <laughs> so snarky. <laughs> Listen, he's always loved Cassius Severo. I'm sorry you're not hot enough for Darrow. Darrow loves Severo just as a friend. He loves Cassius as <laughs> something else. As they make their way to the Senate chamber, they collect Praetorians and soldiers in their wake, and finally, Mustang gets to make her own Big Darrow speech when she arrives there. She literally throws Octavia's head on the podium, has the dawn scepter in hand, and she says, we must save ourselves from ourselves before the inheritance of humanity is ash. Today, I declare the beginning of a new age with new allies, new ways. I have the rising at my back, a navy made of great golden houses, which holds the obsidian horde in orbit. You have a choice before you, bend or break. Again, I love that she punctuated this by throwing the sovereign's head on the podium. <laughs> 11 out of 10. In the real world, though, would you really want your leader throwing the previous leader's head on the podium? <laughs> in our world, no. But in this world, it was necessary. You followed her, and here's proof that she is dead. And also, it just punctuates the fact that Mustang has the power now. 
specifically highlight in this moment is that Mustang is doing exactly what Octavia did when she took power. Because yeah. when Octavia took power, she showed up with a severed head of the previous yep. ruler. If this was like IRL and somebody did this, I'd be like, please lock that psychopath up. Thank you. <laughs> please keep in mind all of this, all of these uh, character assessments are being made in the context of the screwed character values of the society. Yeah. And none of us here actually condone severing enemies' heads and throwing them to punctuate political <laughs> statements. <laughs> Yeah. That's our new warning. Instead of it being like the views expressed in the show are the host of individuals, it's like the views expressed in the show are not that you should sever your enemy's head and then plop it on a podium to prove your power. But in this society, yes, it is necessary. Of course, Darrow kneels first, then Cassius, Severo, Lysander, the Praetorians, and finally the Senators. And it's all like, hail the Sovereign, hail the Sovereign. So Mustang is just kind of immediately the new Sovereign, which is, uh, you know, to be honest, like a problem in and of itself. But I feel like the way it's written after this is that they had an actual discussion about things. And she's not just the Sovereign because she showed up there with the actual previous Sovereign's head. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I'm assuming that this was the plan that Darrow and Mustang and Cassius and Severo put together in all of this, in which they were like, if this works, this is what we have to do, and it will be Mustang who takes the position of Sovereign. But I think for all the other goals in the room, the severed head was enough. I mean, the key is that she would be accepted by most goals. I mean, that's the logic there. Severo might have been because he was still a gold. Albeit, they didn't know that he was only half gold. Yeah, no, I mean, Darrow never would have. Then Cassius wouldn't have been acceptable to the Reds, so... No, not even that. It's not that Cassius would have been acceptable, because to the Reds, Mustang is also not acceptable by those standards. However, Mustang is politically savvy, whereas Cassius is, like Darrow, just a warrior. He punch and break. He don't know how to talk. And by that same standard, Severo is also not acceptable for that, but Severo does have the extra problem of being the actual head of the Sons of Ares, which does invalidate him for the role of Sovereign by this point, and also in the eyes of golds who value physicality, he's a runt. He's a pixie. No, not a pixie. He's a bronzy. He's a bronzy, yes, my bad. Although I guess in this case, there would be a different name because he is half red, which I think most people know at this point, but... Maybe. It sounded like when Severo does his hanging and his speech that he's also a murderer, which was full snaps, by the way, like 11 out of 10. We'll never get over that. Perfect Severo. Love you so much, bud. Mm -hmm. Meow, meow. But when he does that speech, it's like heavily implied that the reason they accept Ares as one of their own is because they know he's one of their own. I don't know that we ever get explicit people know Severo is half red as a whole, but it's like heavily implied. Finally, the jackal is hung. And although Darrow feels nothing about this, he knows it tears Mustang apart. So despite his previous threats about nobody pulling the jackal's feet, he leads her forward to do that showing him he was loved even at the end i mean and she like grabs his feet and she whispers something this is her twin and then she does it it's one of those very brief things and i don't think it bears like any need for discussion but it shows a lot about who darrow and mustang are as people that despite his threats to just let him die in pain he makes sure that that doesn't happen because he knows that it hurts Mustang, the person he loves. But that's the thing, though. 
He's not the one making that choice. It's Mustang in the end. Darrow really could not have cared less in that moment, but Mustang is the one who has the choice to leave the jackal hanging there and nobody would have objected. I don't know that Darrow would have done it of his own accord if she like wasn't there or something, but he leads her forward because he knows that's the closure that she needs. Whatever. The jackal's dead. Bye forever. Nobody's ever going to miss you. They might have won, but all is not well. I mean, it did literally just happen, so it's not shocking that the Ash Lord is off to rally his supporters while gold warlords are carving out their own claims, but... Dara recalls, In my youth, I thought I would destroy the society, dismantle its customs, shatter the chains, and something new and beautiful would simply grow from the ashes. That's not how the world works. This compromised victory is the best mankind could hope for. Change will come slower than Dancer or the Suns want, but it will come without the price of anarchy. So we hope. I really do love that line, or that whole passage. Very, very good. I mean, it's honest. It is, yeah. It sucks, but it's also honest. And also the acknowledgement of his previous naivety in which he believed that you could just break the system and something new would automatically show up to fix it and like realizing that that's not how it works realizing that in a way breaking the system is the easy job it's the first step you still have to rebuild an entirely new system and even then you're gonna fuck it up it's not gonna be perfect yep all you can try to do is be better hashtag we love growth in this house yeah needs to be snuck in more often than not Cassius leaves despite Darrow telling him he could stay. He's like, nah, there's no place for me here. I want to see what else is out there. And he takes Lysander with him and he's like, I'm going to raise him right. Which good luck with that, y'all. I don't really see any sort of other finish for Cassius other than just kind of piecing out on society. And I don't think that Lysander could have stayed around and been safe. So get that. And now Darrow gets a vacation, complete with a surprise son. I just want to, like, lull about this a little bit, because everyone knew about it before Darrow. <laughs> yeah. Obviously the Telemannises, and also now we know why Mustang and Deanna, Darrow's mom, had such a heartfelt goodbye earlier in this book. But also Dancer, Victra, Severo, they're all on that ship. That brings Pax to meet Darrow. <laughs> Literally everyone knew. <laughs> oh, man. Let's talk about this critical plot point, however. Why did Mustang want to get pregnant when she did? Because the alternative is she was just to. an idiot. No, no. In she 500 didn't. years, they don't have better birth control? I don't, I don't think she. I don't think she thought about that when they had just finished the Iron Rain and Darrow was like seriously injured, barely saved by Fitchner, and she went to his room and was like sleeping in the bed with him while he was sleeping and recovering and then he wakes up and she's like, mm, I'm gonna bang you, bro. I'm telling you right now, nobody thinks about... No, you know, again, today... <laughs> I would assume methods are a little bit better in 500 years. Hold you to assume that anybody is prioritizing conception when they have bigger shit to think about than women's rights. I don't even think it's that. I literally think it's she didn't think about it because this is the person that she's in love with and she thought he might die and then he didn't and then they have sex. And I guess he is so virile. (laughs) That's all it takes. (laughs) 
<laughs> but like also Mustang does not need like there's no need for her to not have a child, right? She has money, she has power. This is a bad world, so I would not have ever questioned her choice to not have a child after she got pregnant. But that said, I think she really wanted to have Daryl's child. And I think that's all that matters. It was a mistake, quote unquote, and that she didn't expect it to happen or necessarily want it to happen, but it did. And also it probably didn't help that she thought Daryl was dead. This is the thing I get from the person I have loved most in this world. This is absolutely like fully a happy accident. Loki, I do believe that it is possible that if Darrow had not been publicly executed, that she might not have kept the child because she might have thought she still had Darrow. Again, this is no value judgment based off of that decision. It's just a practical one because I think when it comes down to it, no matter what her thoughts were on having children before this, this was her last piece of Darrow. And I think at that point, it was not only was it a happy accident, it was the most fortuitous gift that she could have asked for because she had a way to keep Darrow with her when she thought he was dead. Well, and I also see Mustang actually being the person who just generally really wants to be a mom. That's not her ultimate goal or whatever, but... The way she was raised, very particularly by the Telemannus family, who mm-hmm. is all about family. Mustang being a mom, and even with Daryl gone, knowing that she has the support of the Telemannuses in everything she does. They are so fucking obsessed with her, and I love it. There is nothing about this. Could she have not had a baby? Absolutely. But I honestly don't think there's any plot line, storyline, or world in which she would have chosen not to. Mustang wanted to have this child, not just because Daryl was dead, but because she wanted to be a mother. And let's be real, she would be a good mother. The way she was raised by the Telemannuses, like everything we know about that family. I get that part once she got pregnant. I'm just not buying that in a world where you have basically women soldiers fighting wars that they would not be on semi-permanent protection as they're going into those battles. (laughs) I think here's the other thing, though. No, absolutely not. That's absurd. First of all, I think the biggest thing is that that's probably a requirement for obsidian women and gray women. That's probably an option for gold women if they want to take that route. But for gold women who have this much privilege that they can choose whatever they want to do. There's no reason for them to have active birth control. Well, and also, when was the last time she had had sex? I've had an IUD, but if I didn't have an IUD, I absolutely would not have been on the pill for like years at a time just to maybe possibly prevent the one time in like two years I had sex, okay? Yeah, and for me personally, the reason I got on the pill is to stop my super cripplingly painful periods. And in this society, like, you clearly don't need to do that. They probably have some shit that helps that anyway. Exactly. They have carvers who can fix that already. TLDR. The reason birth control needs to exist in this world right now is because it is not sustainable or affordable for a woman to be in a position when she cannot afford to support herself because she has to be absent from work. To have a baby. That is the reason birth 
in a society where women like Mustang are so privileged and so rich that they can take the time off to have children. They can support themselves if they decided to just have kids. Yeah, so TLDR, the reason we need birth control in this world is because women are not able to financially support themselves or their families if they get pregnant. I mean, seriously, though, there's a very different mindset of the world that we are in now, like Dami was saying, and what this future might be. And also, there's several different aspects that go into this. But here's the thing. I think the real truth is that Mustang hadn't had sex in a long ass time. Damn right she was on birth control with Cassius because she didn't want any part of that. She was in that relationship to protect her family. That's it. But when she was separated from Cassius, it's like, why? And then she has sex with Daryl literally one time and gets pregnant. Ooh, like I said, he virile. I was to say, every single story I've heard about anybody actively trying to have children has involved them having to try multiple times. So I'm just like, hmm, Mustang, babe. <laughs> Dang. I think it's both of them. She got good eggs. He got good sperm. <laughs> well, damn, though. The epilogue of this book is great. And Darrow's last thoughts are, When people needed a sword, not a father. But now, for the first time in my life, I can be both. The war is not over. The sacrifices we made to take Luna will haunt our new world. I know that, but I'm no longer alone in the dark. When I first stepped through the gates of the Institute, I wore the weight of the world on my shoulders. It crushed me, broke me, but my friends have pieced me together. Now they each carry a part of Ao's dream. Together, we can make a world fit for my son, for the generations to come. I don't want to go into the whole last quote that he has because we put it into the summary, but I want to close out with a quick discussion. Thoughts on the following. Darrow, can he be a builder, not just a destroyer? I already expressed my extreme fears about this, but I am so concerned that the only reason we're having a sequel is that one, they're bad at building a new society, and two, Darrow slowly starts to become the tyrant that we've that he initially tried to overthrow, because narratively it would make for a great story. Here are my hopes for the next series, because I know it starts with a 10 years and the war is still raging for trying to get this new order together. So what I hope is that we get true rebuilding and restructuring of society. We get the story of what happens after the battle. And what I also want to see is I do want to see the story of Darrow becoming that tyrant, but then stepping back and becoming better from it. Because I think that would be really cool. I was hoping for the West Wing on Mars. <laughs> I mean, I will also accept that if we get Mustang just being the badassest president ever, like I'll accept that. I will be happy with that. Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I don't think Darrow knows how to be a builder. I think he yeah. wants to be that, but I don't think he knows how to be. I think I agree with you. I think he's not experienced at being a builder. He is experienced at being a killer and a warlord and not at peace or running any kind of government. Well, thankfully he has Mustang for that. So yes, we have a little bit of hope. I have a lot more hope in Mustang than I do in Darrow. Yeah, absolutely. Next part is Mustang's battle, not Darrow's. Yeah. But as we close out, the things that he lists that he is going to tell Pax about. The rage of Ares. In this case, he's talking about Fitchner. And I think saying the rage of Ares is probably more like a 
Fitchner was so angry about what happened to his wife that he became an emblem for change. Yes, he was angry, but he used his rage, his anger to try to make a difference. This isn't about he just being an angry boy. Yeah, right? no, it's about the productive way that the anger was channeled. It's about the ability to take your rage at injustice and to use it to drive justice instead. Yep. Heck yeah, Fitchner. I know I miss him so much. The strength of Ragnar. This is obviously not about physical strength. This is about a dude who was able to overcome what he was trained to do, what he did, and channel that strength into being a shield for the people. The honor of Cassius. I don't know, ma'am. Honestly, though, I do kind of have to ultimately stand up for this one because it sounds very, very cheesy. But the reason Cassius is better than the other golds is because he realizes that his honor extends to how he treats the people he was taught were beneath him. And the reason Cassius is honorable, whereas other golds are not, is because to him, when it comes down to it, he treats a person as a person because it's the right and honorable thing to do, whereas yeah. the other golds don't. You're not wrong, but I find it hard not to just think of Zuko running around being like, my honor! I mean, you're also not wrong. That's actually a super good comparison. Cassius, Zuko. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For anybody who is listening to this, watching this, listening to this, whatever, if you have not watched Avatar, The Last Airbender, the cartoon, let me be very specific. Yeah, Cassius and Zuko, I, yes. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. This might actually be the redemption arc that is on the level of that. That's a good parallel, Nick. My honor! The next two are interesting because I would have said the loyalty of Severo, but Darrow says the love of Severo. I actually have very, very strong thoughts on this one, mostly because when these things were said, First off, like knee-jerk, Victra's thing was not love. Victra's thing was loyalty to Darrow. She used the idea of her love and her sexuality as a weapon. She ultimately finds her love in the story within Severo and within her ability to be true to herself with her friends. But the reason she gets there is because she made the commitment to Darrow as a friend and stayed loyal to that. And that's why... Victra gets loyalty. And the reason Severo gets love is because, especially in this book, he's a product of love. Yes. One, he's a product of love. Very base level. But two, the reason he matters so much to Darrow is not just because of their loyalty, although obviously that does help. And Severo is the one who has been loyal to him for the longest. But Severo's loyalty for Darrow did come from love the whole time. It came because he viewed him as the brother. It came because they were brothers and they loved each other as brothers. And that is why that loyalty stayed. So for Severo, Severo is base love result loyalty. Victra is base loyalty result love. 
And that's why those were the choices for them. I got really, really into my feels at the end of this book. Don't mind me. I thought about this a lot. (laughs) Oh, I do not disagree that Victor should be loyalty. I was always just kind of like, sever love? I don't know. But like, yeah, no, you're right. I think the thing that really hammered it in with sever with love was this book. Because somebody who was just loyal would have been spiritually broken to have the person that they were loyal to come back and be like, you're a shitty leader. Because it was true, obviously. But Severa was able to get past that and still grow and still come into himself as a leader of a different sort because of the love in him. And because of the love that he had for Darrow and the willingness of them to like literally like fist fight it out. As <laughs> literally, yeah. Shitty siblings would do. Really, Victor's loyalty, that's kind of obvious. She straight up said at one point, I'm loyal to you because of you as a person. I don't give a shit Mm -hmm. what you are underneath. I don't care that you're red. I care that you are a person that is worthy of me being loyal to and of me following. So I don't think Victor being loyalty is in question. Last but not least... The dream of EO, which is to live for more. That's self-explanatory. At the heart of it, I have feelings about EO being kind of manipulative and selfish. Like, I agree with Darrow's mother. Darrow has this thought about how EO would not have been happy ever as they were. Mm -hmm. Whereas he was... And it was losing her that caused all of this. And they could have stayed in their little realm and she could have not died. But she would have been more miserable as the years went on because she saw something or wanted something more than what they were shown. So none of this would have existed without the dream of Eo and her martyrdom. Eo, I barely knew her. (laughs) Thank you. I've been holding that in for this entire saga. On that note, do we all want to howl one last time? Yes! Because I want to howl. As we close out this episode, we just want to give a shout out to our Heroes Tier patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts, Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We will be back on Wednesday, March 8th to cover part one of Iron Gold. And just a note, we will be splitting our Iron Gold coverage up by point of view character. And when we edit that coverage into podcasts, each point of view character will be separated into their own podcast episode. This means that episode 63 will be one webcast about part one of Iron Gold, but it will then be broken down into four separate podcast episodes. So if you want to hear it all at once, make sure you join us live. And if you want early access to the podcast versions, please remember to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. 
Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.